<clears throat> yeah. Hey, Martin. <laughs> yeah. I'm in a closet. And I'm in a Swedish closet. Uh, <laughs> okay. So this is a this is a special serendipity episode where we uh, we're gonna present uh, our best new artist. Yeah, it's because we had the Sarah Awards. You silly! You don't sound so excited. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Second annual yes. Sarah Awards College International festival yay exactly so yeah exactly. so this is going to be the first of three special serendipity podcasts where we present the winners of the 2017 sarah lawrence college international audio fiction awards dun, dun, dun. and let's start with the best new and artist this, and this this is a very special piece because uh, i mean we had a lot of entries from the best new artist category which is amazing because it actually means that there's mm-hmm. so many people wanting to make audio fiction from around the world uh, but this piece yep. stood out because it's uh, it's almost like a um, audio CCTV camera because there's a number, a chain of people actually commenting a, s- a series of events, creating a almost voyeuristic and, and surreal experience. Well, I remember seeing her. I mean, she came into where we were. I was hiding under my desk, shot in my arm. And she came running out of the conference room. She came into the training room. And it's by Andrew Wardlaw, who made it for his podcast, the Lamplight Radio Play podcast. Do you want me to tell you about it, Martin? No. Let's listen. Wait, no. <laughs> I have to tell you. What? Tell me. <laughs> We're gonna listen. It's the it's a modern update of an of a piece called An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Bierce. So we at least have to give that. I'm not gonna tell you everything about it, but it is uh, an adaptation of a piece, but this one is called An Occurrence at BE Investments by Andrew Wardlar. And here it is. Voila. We used two of them, right? Yeah, uh, sounds like they're in the trading room. I don't think we can run away. Get a chair. If he comes in, throw it at him and we charge him and get his gun. Holy crap! Tell me if you have something better. No. By the door, quickly. Amidst all the tragedy in the Pierce-Henry Investments Building, we wanted to bring you this story of one brave woman... One brave woman. This heroic young woman... ...whose actions may have saved countless lives. This is security footage from inside. Here, two unarmed employees take a stand against the attack, fighting back with chairs and furniture, and while one employee subdues the gunman, the other escapes to look for help. Well, I remember seeing her. I mean, she came into where we were. I was hiding under my desk, shot in my arm, and she came running out of the conference room. She came into the trading room, which I guess was smart because they already wiped us out and had moved on, so... She makes her way to the fire exit, only to discover the door has been chained shut. They chained all the fire doors shut so people couldn't get out. She sees they locked the fire exit, and I guess she calls 911. 911, what's your emergency? I'm on the 32nd floor of the Pierce Henry building. And instead of hiding or playing dead, she risked calling 911 to keep authorities up to date. When another gunman re-enters the room... They're chaining the fire exit shut and... And one of them came back and started shooting. Totally had her, like, right in the line of fire. But he missed her, but then he hit the chain on the door. And he broke it, and it just fell off couldn't believe that it happened. It was, like, meant to be or something. And then he ran out of bullets. He ran to reload, and she took off into the stairwell. Once she made it to the stairwell, I thought, she'll get out. 
Someone's gonna get out. She runs into the stairwell. And again, bad luck turns into good luck. And this is unbelievable. And you are not gonna believe this. She slips on a step, falls. She lands on the platform right as the gunman is entering the stairway. But because of a coincidence of how the door opens and how she landed, the gunman never sees her as he goes down the steps. With the gunman now below her blocking the exit, she leaves the stairway. It seemed like fate to me. Uh, two gunmen had just quickly swept the whole floor, just shooting everyone they could see as fast as they could. I'd been shot twice. He'd grazed my head with one bullet. The other one got both of my legs, you know, through and through both, but especially in my left, I couldn't walk. And once they did that, one of them had left, and the other one was going around just finishing everyone off. I was crawling my way down the hall trying to find a hiding place. I could hear the gunshots coming from just down the hall, and then she came out of the door in the stairway. I told her that she needed to hide, and she asked where, and I said, there's a closet just down there, because I knew that there was a tiny closet where all the phone connections were, and I said, but I can't make it. And she grabbed me under my arms, and she pulled me into it. And when we got inside, I was amazed to discover we could lock this closet. I thought that we were safe. They were not safe. As they waited in the closet applying pressure to Henry's wounds, they heard more gunshots continually getting closer. We didn't hear him walk up, but we heard the shots, you know, coming in our direction. And then we heard the doorknob rattle as he tried to open it. And then he fired three shots through the door. Bang, bang, bang. And somehow all of them missed. They stayed in the closet for what Henry estimates was 10 minutes until all they hear is silence. She asked me if I was okay, and I told her, um, no, I'm, I'm getting worse. And she said, I'm going to go get help. I, just, I didn't even try to stop her. Uh, I said, please, please hurry. And she shut the door behind her, and I heard the door shut, which I assume was her going into the stairway. <sighs> and that's when I heard the first bomb explode. In their final act, the terrorists waited until police were entering the building and then exploded suicide vests in the emergency stairwells. It was like, boom, and then a minute later, another one. The lights were flickering and the walls were shaking and there was debris everywhere and dust. You couldn't see anything. I'd say most people were still worried that there was a shooter on the floor, so people are trying very hard not to make any more noise at that point if they were still alive. I just said to myself, there's just no way I'm going to get out of here. It just didn't seem possible that any of us were going to survive this. I didn't think any of us were going to survive that. But from the chaos comes a voice of hope. Comes a voice of hope. Someone's coming out. Is that a terrorist? The woman survived. Ma'am, are you okay? Oh, there's blood on the arm. Scratch my wrist, it's fine. The, the gunmen are all dead. The stairway on the northwest corner has 
a bunch of debris on it, but you can get through. Please sit down. Let me look There's you a over. man in the phone closet on the seventh floor. He's hurt really bad. He needs help. I need a police officer. Calm down. You might be hurt and don't even know it. I think I'm okay. Is my dad here? He's right here. I'm right here, button. Everything's okay now. I didn't I didn't think I'd make it. You always find a way out. And you're safe now. It's all over. You're safe. You're safe. You're safe. You're safe. I'm good. Okay. Get ready. Get ready. Get ready. Go! Okay, so Martin, do you remember what Andrew said um, when he was giving his award? Uh, yeah, so, so Andrew, the guy who won, he stood up on stage and he said... Hi! <laughs> Uh, have we recorded the session? So, uh, like last year? This is fantastic. Uh, I hope so. Anne told me I had to tell everybody this. <laughs> I mean, I just wanted to say this. This is, this is actually very true. So, uh, this whole podcast actually grew out of the Sarah Awards last year. They did uh, a very, very short, short stories contest. We had to make a piece under three minutes. And uh, I made a piece. And uh, I showed it to uh, I showed it to a friend of mine, and they uh, we were very very happy with it. We thought it turned out great. It, they you know it didn't win anything, but we were, we loved it. And uh, we said, all right, let's do more of this. And so it actually started our podcast called the Lamplight Radio Play, and where we're we're now doing it. And the, the podcast would not exist without the Sarah Awards. Yeah. So I guess we can take all the credit yes, we can take all the credits. Thanks, Andrew. Okay, let's get on to our next one. And this next one is actually a new award with, that we didn't have last year uh, called the Sarah Sarah Award. And Martin, have you uh, heard me tell the story about my oh, students? So many times. <laughs> I tell stories over and over again. But that's what you do when, when you have a good story to tell. People ask you about it and you tell it over and over again. Well... The story that I tell over and over again, because it's true and I love it and it's interesting, is that my students, my Sarah Lawrence students, are really the ones who are the whole reason for the Sarah Lawrence College International Audio Fiction Awards, the Sarah Awards. Um, And so what we decided to do this year is to celebrate their contribution and have them choose a piece that uh, they felt represented the spirit of Sarah Lawrence. And so if we have the audio clip, we can, ask, we can have them read it, can't we? So the Sarah Sarah Award is meant to... Oh, my goodness. Yeah, a yeah. little bit. The Sarah Sarah Award is meant to represent what it means to be a part of Sarah Lawrence. As the winner for the Sarah Sarah's Award represents voices unheard and stories that need to be continued to be told. It, gives, it gave us the narratives of a variety of black men who have experiences that we can either directly relate and empathize with or stories that are completely new to us that can open up our view of the world and how others see it. Sorry. So this piece that they chose, it's, uh, we're just going to play a portion of it, uh, a portion of the first one. It's, um, it was two long-form radio plays by Judith Kampfner for uh, BBC Radio 4, and it's called Black and Blue, Two Radio Plays Exploring Race and Policing in America. We're going to hear a bit of the piece, this section called Hands Up. 
Uh, And in this piece, six young black male playwrights respond to the legacy of the 2014 shooting of 18-year-old Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. How I Feel by Dennis A. Allen II. I'd like to start with the showing of solidarity. If you would, please, raise your arms straight up in the air. I'm going to say, hands up. You respond with, don't shoot. So when I say hands up, you say, don't shoot. Hands up. Don't shoot. Hands up. Don't shoot. Hands up. Don't shoot. Don't shoot. Don't shoot. A few days into the protests after Mike Brown's death in Ferguson, I was at my girlfriend's apartment watching the news coverage and following the Twitter updates. That he was shot at least six times. We've got one to the very top of the head. The we both have been following the events closely for the past few days on almost a 24-7 vigilance. The, right the room was filled to the ceiling with our angst and anger and fear and depression. Right so we decided to take a break, turn off the television and go offline. We sat silently for a second, and then she turned to me. Baby, we never talked about how to handle it if we're out together and the police harass you. Like, what do you think I should do? I'm looking at a woman I love. I see and feel her fear, and it's a a fear that I'm all too familiar with. My mother has shared with me on a couple of occasions that when she was pregnant with me, she would find herself praying. She cried Tears filled with the shame and anger that only someone born into a world that doesn't value black lives can truly know. I prayed that you wouldn't be a boy, because I knew that from the time you were born, you'd be born with a bullseye on your back. So now, when I look at my girlfriend... So what's the best way to keep you safe from the police? I think about Mike Brown. Think about him being shot to death and then left in the street for four and a half hours, uncovered for the entire neighborhood to see. This is a problem. This is a child that was killed unjustly. He was shot in the back numerous times and left face down on the street, despite whatever he... Think about the countless other names, the the ones we know, the ones undocumented, beaten, tased, violated, shot, murdered at the hands of our so-called servers and protectors. I think about my girlfriend and my mother, worried night after night, hoping and praying that when I go out, I come home because they know I'm the prey and it's open season out there. The fear that comes with knowing that you're not protected by those that are hired to protect you. Not only that, but they are targeting you and it's illegal to protect yourself against those hired to protect you. Imagine a world where every single black or brown American only wore their Sunday best, all prayed to a Christian God, never said a cuss word, didn't do any drugs, not even prescription, and broke no laws, never engaged in any violence whatsoever, all worked, never got on public assistance, no matter what the state of the job market was, and were never in debt. Imagine if black people were morally, spiritually, and financially better than any and every white person that has ever walked the earth. Perfect. Better than any human being has ever been. Then, and only then, could we rid our society of institutionalized racism, prejudice, and bigotry in America. Then, and only then, will white people see us as valuable human beings. 
Then, and only then, will we be able to see ourselves as valuable human beings. Imagine this world. What if I told you, if you could just keep your hands up high, we could create this utopia together? But you can never drop your hands. Hands up. For the sake of black people here in America and abroad, keep your hands up. Try. Try for a long time. No one can do it. No human can keep his or her hands up forever. And this bullshit fantasy isn't the answer either. I am human. My life is valuable and I shouldn't have to keep my hands held high to prove it. And time and time again, keeping our hands held high hasn't gotten us treated like human beings should be treated. So how do I feel? Screw you. It's how I feel. I will not allow you to take away my humanity. Every time you tell me not to be angry, that I'm too aggressive, that I shouldn't be out at night, that I shouldn't wear a hoodie and that I need to pull up my pants, and when I comply with your orders and reach for my wallet, you kill me anyway. When I drop to the ground and allow you to handcuff me, you shoot me anyway. When you put me in the back of the paddy wagon, you break my neck anyway. Screw you. Mike Brown was shot six times. He had no weapon. His brains were blown out in broad daylight. There is not language strong enough to convey what I feel about that. Screw you for not feeling what I feel. Screw you for shutting down because, yes, I'm using strong language because I'm not safe. My father's not safe. My brothers and sisters, my mother is not safe because none of you value our lives. Police don't. Whites don't. Blacks don't. But I will not allow you to take away my rights, my humanity. You indiscriminately killing me is a display of your power. Being willing to die for what I believe in is the display of mine. Hands up. Hands up. Hands up. Do you think what happened to Mike Brown could happen to you? Yeah. Do you feel afraid about what happened to Michael Brown? Uh, well, yeah, I guess kind of, because um, it is something that very much does affect me personally as a young black man. But uh, I can't live my life in fear every day of what might happen to me, just in case that does happen. But it definitely does affect me, and I definitely do think about it, especially when I'm around cops. Walking Next to Michael Brown, Confessions of a Light-Skinned Half-Breed, by Eric Holmes. If I were walking next to Michael Brown on Canfield Drive in Ferguson, Missouri, the day he was accosted by Officer Darren Wilson for stealing cigars... I would have said the magic words. These seven words are passed down from white mothers to their sons. These are the words that white people wish black people would say. If black people didn't trifle, if they weren't actually doing something wrong, if they just said the magic words, then they wouldn't keep getting shot. Fear not, black people. I know the magic words for I am half white. Officer Wilson would be on one side, Michael Brown on the other, and I would stand in between, hands up, in a gesture of biracial peace. 
Officer Wilson meets my eyes. Green eyes I inherited from my black granddaddy, who died before we met, who never had the chance to tell me how proud he was of me at this moment. And then, just as the officer's about to shoot, I say them. But, officer, there must have been a miscommunication. Officer Wilson lowers his gun. Why, uh, thank you, son. Thank you for your calm demeanor and respect for an officer of the law. May I see the receipt for your friend's cigars? And I'd say, but of course, Mr. Brown. Would you care to show Officer Wilson the receipt for those cigars? And Mr. Brown would say, Behold, officer, forsooth, the receipt for my cigars. Wilson takes the receipt, inspects it, but not closely, hands it back. Well, everything here looks in order. All's well and good then, boys. Tally-ho. Tally-ho, officer. Tally-ho. Then we watch Officer Wilson walk away into the fog, twirling his nightstick and whistling, I don't know, Frere Jacques or something. And when he gets home, his wife entreats. Darren, dear, why were you late? Shut up is why I'm late. And then they make love. The kind of love you see in sex education videos with foggy lenses. The kind of love most couples reserve for special events, like anniversaries, holidays, and making parole. But not Wilson and his wife. Every day is Valentine's Day, and when they kiss, they kiss long and hard and Officer Wilson never removes his holster. And when she falls asleep, she dreams of rainbows and doves and Lionel Richie songs. Finished. Officer Wilson puts on a robe and walks downstairs to his den, smokes a cigar, and writes a check to the United Negro College Fund. All because I said the magic words. But, officer, there must have been a miscommunication. I've never needed to use the magic words because no one's ever called the cops on me. Except once. Once when I was around the age of Michael Brown when he was killed. When I was young and bored and drunk and I thought it would be a good idea to break into a friend's apartment at two in the morning. The cops were called. I don't know when she called them. It must have been after I threw rocks at her window and before I scaled a tree next to her second-floor balcony. When I entered her room, I saw her there in her nightgown, perched at the foot of her bed, holding a phone in one hand and a butcher's knife in the other. If she stabbed me, it wouldn't have been because I'm black. She would have stabbed me because I was a goddamn moron. You might be wondering why. Was it luck that kept me from going to jail? Maybe. But if it was luck, it wasn't the first time I was lucky. I'd been pulled over more than once without an ID in a borrowed car and was let go. I'd been caught sneaking into concerts, nightclubs, public buildings. No arrests, no tear gas, no gunshots. Ferguson, Missouri, this was not. So maybe it's my appearance that explains why I've never been arrested. I'm a light-skinned half-breed, a white man who stays tan in February. And racial profiling is not about nuance. It's about what people see. It's about what an armed police officer sees, sometimes from a hundred yards away in a moment of crisis. 
But sometimes I wonder if my appearance would have mattered had I grown up in Ferguson, a town that is 70% black, unlike my neighborhood, which was 4%. Maybe walking through black neighborhoods makes you blacker. I mean, it's not like I'm that white. My lips are full and my hair kinks in humid air. So maybe, if I were walking next to Michael Brown on Canfield Drive, I would have rocked that St. Louis Cardinals cap to the side with a little less irony. I would have helped him steal those cigars. I would have been more suspicious, more observant, more defensive, resulting in a more persuasive swagger so that from a distance, Officer Wilson, through his tinted windshield, would have seen Michael Brown walking next to another tall black dude wearing a red cap obscuring his green eyes. And maybe when Officer Wilson pulled up to the curb and grabbed Michael Brown by the throat, I would have run out of time. Because officer, there must have been a miscommunication, takes about four seconds to say. Michael Brown was shot six times. Officer, bang, there must have bang, been a bang, miscommunication, bang, bang. That's six shots in four seconds. Compare that to the following. Each one by itself takes less than two. But I'm just going home. what I do? Why are you following me? I ain't do nothing. I said I'm going home. I'm unarmed. My hands are up. I said I'm unarmed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Don't shoot. Don't shoot. Don't shoot. After Officer Wilson wrote his check to the United Negro College Fund, he took off his robe and got dressed for the night shift. At 2.17 a.m., he was dispatched to a single white female's address. She called 911, reporting a young black male, probably drunk, throwing stones at her window before scaling a tree next to her second-floor balcony. Fortunately, the single white female recognized the green eyes of a light-skinned half-breed and screamed, What's the matter with you? You scared the hell out of me, dude. It's 2 in the morning. It's dark outside. I called the cops. And before the light-skinned half-breed could say sorry, the front door kicked open. But officer, there must have been a... All right, Martin. So this is the the first out of three special, special uh, uh, episode of the winners of the Sarah Awards, the second annual Sarah Awards. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're yeah. going to go back to you quite soon with what awards are mm-hmm. we going to play then? Well, let's not no, tell no, them. No, 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 but which, I mean, which one? Uh. I mean, uh, which, uh, I mean wh- which prizes? Oh, oh. Honorable mention in third place. Perfect. You know what, Martin? No. You're special. You're special. You're special. We're special. And Everybody's special. And KCRW's special. Uh, independent radio production producer something project is special because it actually makes this podcast yeah. um, happen. Yes. And a big thank you to them, too, because they also provided the travel money um, and the best new artist money. So they are amazing. Serendipity is an initiative of the Sarah Awards, just like the Sarah Lawrence College International Audio Fiction Awards. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And I'm right. Martin Johnson, and you're... Anne Hepperman. Yes. 
And, and we still want postcards. And we We've love the postcards three. that we got. We love the postcards. <laughs> love, 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 love the postcards. So send them. Thank you. Send them, send them, send them. All right, okay. go I need to, uh, get out of the closet. Yeah, and I need to take care of two kids. I got another kid. I got two kids now. <laughs> <laughs> even more, All right, even go. more to take care of. Okay. Hey, Dora. Hey, Dora. Bye.